Hello and welcome to the Covert Nerd Podcast. First of all, I want to do some shout outs to some fans out there like I've done in other episodes. The first one is to Lee Bachma at The Art of Lee Bachma on Facebook. He's a great guy and a fantastic artist and he's been on several episodes with me as well. So go check him out at The Art of Lee Bachma. Second is Doug at Grand Comic-Con. He's in charge of the Comic-Con at Grand Island. Again, another great guy who loves the nerd community and nerd culture. I'll include a link in the show notes on how you can get in touch with him if you would like to. Also, I want to thank you, the listener, because this episode is the 50th episode. I appreciate the time that you give me like I do in every episode because I wouldn't be doing this if, if it wasn't for my amazing listeners. So thank you for getting me to episode 50, and I hope we can go many more. I've met a lot of people on this journey that are into the, some of the same things I, I am into, and it's been great interacting with all of you. Like I always say, thank you for taking the time out of your day to hear what I have to say. And before we get started, I want to mention that in this episode, when we recorded, I was still battling a cold and I still, I was, I was battling a cold and I'm still battling a cold as you can probably hear, but I do have a, a few coughing fits in the episode. So heads up, sometimes when we schedule these recordings, whether you're feeling great or not feeling great, you still need to push through it. And that's what I did. Without further ado, let's dive right in and nerd it up with Tim. Today we have our resident local Star Wars expert, Tim, from Rainbow Comics, to, <laughs> to discuss the Mandalorian TV series. And if you haven't paid attention, that is the premier TV series right now on Disney+. And Tim, I know, is a huge Star Wars fan, so I wanted to sit and pick his brain a little bit about the TV series. Heads up, there's going to be spoilers for The Mandalorian. Rise of Skywalker and pretty much anything else that might be on the horizon or that is out as far as Star Wars goes. So you've been warned. <laughs> All righty. What do you want to talk about first? Well, let's take a look at, I guess, the Mandalorian series when you got done watching it. I guess how overall satisfied were you with it? Was it up and down for you? Like this episode was good, but this episode was kind of a dud. What, what was your first a, impression? Uh, as a whole, I, I think I dug the whole uh, the whole series. Let me okay. say whole a few more times. I, I really dug it from beginning to end. When it was down, it was it was still great. Like it, its lowest points were still pretty high points. Okay. Uh, overall, I really dug it. But I also have like a huge love of westerns and samurai movies, and yeah. this kind of felt like it kind of felt like a way for Star Wars to play in a new sandbox, it felt very reminiscent of the original trilogy while also managing to kind of have its own identity. Yes. Okay. That segues into a good point. I noticed right away on the series, the simple things like the fades from scene to scene mm -hmm. were the same little, you know, circular fades or side swipe like the fades from the, and stuff. Yeah. Like, from New Hope. You cannot do that. And it, I, when I graduated from film school, one of the, one of the things they told us in film school is don't ever do that. It looks it looks amateur. It looks bad. Really, and for whatever reason, Star Wars can do it. And the reason they can the reason they can do it is because they just kind of did it at a time when they were defining what 
Star Wars is. So when episode four came out or Star Wars or the original movie, 1977, mm-hmm. when that came out already visually, it was so distinct and so very specifically Star Wars that it can incorporate silly things like a, like a cross dissolve or a cross fade or a, okay. a circle fade or whatever you want to call them. Uh, it can do that because it is Star Wars. And, yeah. and, if you saw that, if you went to go watch the Avengers and you see that really slow wipe from the right side of the screen to the left side of the screen to transition, it would look very out of place and mm-hmm. look very artificial uh, because that's not part of cinema language, but it is a part of Star Wars language. And and incorporating that into the Mandalorian was something I thought was incredibly smart. Yes. Um, you actually see that in things like Jedi Fallen Order. Uh, and a lot of the video games as well, okay. they will incorporate that in the cutscenes. It just it's a it's an easy easy visual indicator that this is Star Wars. Mm-hmm. I love that when I saw that on the very first episode, that was one of the simple simple fan services that they did. Oh, for sure. What other fan services or things did you see that caught your eye? The main thing, the first thing I saw for sure was was the rifle, and everybody talks about the rifle, okay. but it it deserves to be talked about. We're talking about Mando's the, rifle, the Mandalorian's rifle. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's kind of like a a long rifle with a tuning fork at the yes. end. Yes, that was Boba Fett's rifle in the holiday special, uh, which is the, the infamous holiday special, which I've seen. And it is as bad as everybody says it is. And it's not like it's not like a challenge to go watch it. Do do not watch it. Don't watch it. It's not it's not even worth laughing at. It's it's so hard to watch. But uh, in the Blu-ray release of the Star Wars, like the Star Wars box set episodes one through six, on the bonus discs, there's actually an Easter egg on there that has the entire animated segment from mm-hmm. the holiday special. Yes. So you can actually see that, and it's really cool. But in that segment, it's very much like a Ralph Bakshi-inspired character design. It's really kind of cool. But you do see Boba Fett teaming up with Luke at first, and then he betrays him, but he's got this weird rifle that should never, ever work, and everybody thought it was a cool-looking rifle. Never in a million years would have thought we'd have seen it in live action, let alone we would see it disintegrate people. Yes, that was another little throwback. Yeah, that was a throwback to Empire when Vader tells Boba Fett no disintegrations. Yes. uh, Because he had that rifle, and that rifle disintegrates people. (laughs) Yes, it does look a little bulky on him, but they still make it work. It works completely. Nothing about, again, that goes back to what I was saying before about the visual language of Star Wars. And uh, again, in The Empire Strikes Back and the original theatrical cut, there's a shot on Cloud City of a guy running through running through Cloud City as it's being attacked by the Empire, but he's holding what's supposed to look like a futuristic device, but even in the in the 80s, everybody was like, that is an ice cream maker. That's that awesome. It's <laughs> just running with an ice cream maker. But they brought that back uh, and so the the client, played by Werner Herzog, he actually is carrying all of his Beskar in one of those ice cream makers. Oh. Uh, and so that is another throwback that I absolutely Really? Oh, so yeah. when he opens up the Beskar... When, there, when the... he opens up that container, it's just an ice cream maker. And it's the same kind of ice cream maker that that, that, that extra was carrying. That's in awesome. Empire. 
and it's super fun. It has no bearing on anything. If you didn't know that, it's it doesn't take away or add anything to it except for the fact where you're like, ah, I know that. The super it. fans will catch it. Sure. The casual fan will be like, oh, okay, whatever. You know, they won't even notice it, sure. but they'll still get to enjoy it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. It's, and, and the show is filled with stuff like that. There is an episode where the episode with Bill Burr, where they go to, it's like a heist episode, yes. which is super cool. Yeah, the the, the prison ship. Yeah, yes. there is one living person on that ship. That person was played by Matt Lanter, who was the mm-hmm. voice of Anakin Skywalker in the Clone Wars. Yes. Uh, and a whole bunch of other stuff. But it, it's, it was cool to have that. Clancy Brown played a Deveronian. Was he a Deveronian? He was a different, he was a different species. He was the red guy with the horn. Yeah, but the, the big guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But that was Clancy Brown, who uh, was the voice of Savage Opress and a bunch of other troopers. In the Rebels. Yeah, in, in Star Wars Rebels, he was Savage Opress. And it was really cool to see people from the animation side of things being incorporated into the live action, which is the kinds of stuff I want to see moving forward with specific characters. Sure. Um, on the inverse of that, you know, we're, we're getting to see live action, or we're getting to see animation people in live action on the Mandalorian and then also in Rise of Skywalker we got sorry guys I'm talking about it we got to hear Kanan from Rebels was one of the voices you heard you heard yes. Ahsoka you heard every you know people who were doing voices specifically for the cartoons and for for super fans you know which if I may indulge myself <laughs> uh, already introduced you as a super fan <laughs> oh good good a resident expert sorry resident, resident expert. expert well you know whatever just whatever <laughs> makes me sound cooler than <laughs> I actually am uh, but it was it's really fun to be able to to see those things. And and if if let's say I'm talking to you, Lee, and you have no idea who Kanan is and we see Rise of Skywalker, you're thinking it's super cool because you're seeing this really cool scene. I think it's super cool because I'm seeing this really cool scene and also Kanan's in it. Yeah. yeah. And so it's it's just kind of another little thing. And and the reason I bring up Rise of Skywalker with this is because it's all happening, you know, right now. Mm-hmm right now mm-hmm. yeah uh, you know we can we could talk about this next year when you know when i own the box set of the mandalorian and i own the skywalker saga and i can watch those at the same time and it doesn't necessarily have the same effect because we can watch it whenever this is something unique to december of 2019 yeah. um this is as we're experiencing the lore which again there are some of us like like you and I who will watch the cartoons and the TV shows and read the books and read the comics. Mm -hmm. But there are some people who only will take the movies Mm -hmm. or now the TV shows as that's all they know about star Wars. And that's totally cool. But at this point, you know, we saw in the Mandalorian, the child, the baby Yoda used the force to heal somebody. Mm -hmm. And a week later we're watching the rise of Skywalker and we're seeing those same force powers being used and just from a serial point of view for storytelling, I, I'm completely fascinated by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm really, really excited that I can experience it this way and nobody else is going to experience it this way. Mm-hmm. Like, and now, even now, uh, we're, we're staring at the new year here in the next couple of days people aren't going to be able to experience it that way anymore because it's already happened in yeah. the past. Uh, and it's, it's just kind of a lightning in a bottle moment. It uh, is. And I mean, because if you look at, well, let's, let's pivot to John Favre, who di- directed the, 
the series. No, he or didn't. Produced it. Sorry. Yeah, he he was the showrunner, so he All was in right. he was in charge of everything. Producer. He, mm-hmm. he was the he, he basically he he wrote the show. Uh, he didn't write every episode, but he was no. he was basically the uh, the main writer and the the idea man behind everything. Because he was the producer, not the director. Correct. Okay. But going to film school, explain to me and the listener the difference between a producer and a director. It's a little bit different for TV than for like movies. Okay. So if you're credited as a producer on a TV show, you're basically a writer. Okay. Uh, and for John Favreau, he is the head writer. So he's the showrunner. He's basically on the sorry to sound sacrilegious or whatever, but on uh, on the t- on the set, he's God. So he, <laughs> <That's fine. laughs> he is the George Lucas of the Mandalorian. He gets okay. to he gets to dictate everything. So when Dave Filoni, who actually is a co-showrunner, when Dave Filoni's directing his episode, John Favreau has veto power. Or okay. when Bryce Dallas Howard comes in to direct her episode, she directs it as a as a film director would direct, but she doesn't get to dictate necessarily depending on how the show is run. TV director doesn't necessarily get to dictate how a character responds. That is that the final say for that goes to John Favreau. He's in charge of making sure that there is a consistency between everything on a film, on the film side of things. It's kind of like Kevin Feige for the MCU where he is the the one responsible. So if uh, Joss Whedon makes Avengers and Avengers bombs, it's Joss Whedon's responsibility, but it's ultimately Kevin Feige's failure. Uh, and that would be the same thing for John Favreau. He's basically the face of the Mandalorian. Pun intended. <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> like yeah. not intended, but like <laughs> adequate. <laughs> okay. So the producer in the, so you're saying, okay, the producer is in this case in the TV world, I guess we'll just stick mm-hmm. to that since we're talking about the Mandalorian. Sure. John has the ultimate say. Yes. So the director, though, is kind of a subset. They get to kind of write, direct how what the actors are going to say what they're going to do but you're saying john can come back in and say no we're just we're not going to do that exactly so the director in a tv show in this case let's look at deborah chow deborah chow directed episodes three and episode seven so what deborah chow brings to the table is how you take specifically deborah chow and this is just from me watching her episodes because i love her episodes she has the ability to have two people having a conversation and have it be the most intense thing. And it's very, very specific, and it's very, very direct. Deborah Chow is going to be the showrunner for the new Obi-Wan show that's supposed to be coming out around 2021. Watching Mandalorian, and specifically her episodes and how she works with Jon Favreau, gets me really excited for what potentially could be an a show about a hermit living in the desert, which doesn't sound that exciting, but the fact that she can take very mundane things and really amp it up. Like she did the episode where we found the Mandalorians in the sewers, that whole sequence of him walking through in the sewer. We didn't get any exposition really, except that they are there post purge. We don't know what they're, society is we don't know what they're trying to accomplish we don't really understand much about the armorer but we feel everything it feels very lived in it feels very real having her be in charge of the obi-wan show really makes me excited for the potential of what could happen 
do you think he gives them a lot of leeway or how does that balance work? I mean, so you're saying if John ultimately has a say, is he there on set while she's there directing? Uh, I can't say for sure. I wonder how that works. Well, it, and, and I guess I should, just before people comment or tweet at me or whatever, Kathleen Kennedy would have veto power over John Favreau. Okay, yeah. Just, just as a heads up, I haven't forgotten about Kathleen Kennedy. Potentially, he's, I don't know that he's there every day, but he's there regularly. Sure. Um, and he, he has people directing so he can write or he can be in the editing bay or he can do whatever he needs to do. He's He's not going to hire... Taika Waititi or Bryce Dallas Howard or Rick Fumiyama Fumiyawa I can't say his name I'm so sorry <laughs> uh he's not going to hire people who can't do the job sure and these are directors who can stand on their own and have stood on their own and they don't need to be micromanaged uh, so it might just be on the cutting room floor so to speak that John says we're we're not going to have that scene in there sure. sure absolutely and and I don't think at any point either would I don't think any of these directors would ever try to overstep boundaries. No. Uh, I don't think... He hired them for a reason. Exactly. <laughs> I don't think this is going to be one of those shows where we will see directors leave for creative differences. I think I think that's one of the things that's been kind of hammered out sure. beforehand. Sure. If anything, we would see somebody like John Favreau leave for creative differences between what he wants to do and what either Kathleen Kennedy or the story group or whomever, what they want to do. So Okay. Yeah, I think at this point, the directors on the show serve more of a purpose to fulfill the story that needs to be told, and they're allowed to put their own flair on it, they're allowed to do whatever they want, but uh, I think their con- the content is a little bit more hammered down. Almost every episode, not every episode, but almost every episode had John Favreau credited as a writer, which yeah. means he already wrote the script, but with him being an executive producer and showrunner... I guarantee you he added something to every script. He, oh, yeah. he had his hands on every script. Yeah, he probably looked at the script. Hey, this looks good. What if we did this? Yeah, so. or he may have been like, this is not how the Mandalorian speaks. He's going to say it like this, or he's not going to say anything. And now you need to make this happen. Make so. it work. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's pivot to the season, or excuse me, episode one of the reveal of Baby Yoda. Sure. What did you think? I felt like I should have seen it coming. Okay. Uh, I didn't, and as soon as I saw it, I was like, of course, absolutely, of course. Why did you think of course? Uh, I'm curious. Because when, oh man, it's been, a, it's been a hot minute since I've seen the first episode, so you'll have to bear with me. Uh, I want to say he was told that the target was 50 years old. Okay. Um, when he walked in, I was trying to math in my head. I'm like, who would be the appropriate age? Um because they were like, oh, Vader would have been about 50, but we know he's dead. Dead, yep. And then as soon as I saw that little egg floating there, I was 50 years What on Is it somebody's head? And then as soon as the little baby popped out, I'm like, yeah. that. oh, my gosh, that makes so much sense. Yes. I, was, I was really, really excited. I, I, I always want to guess, and I'm always... I'm always happy when I can't guess, and I'm also a little yeah. disappointed in myself, because, like, how dare I not guess? <laughs> but it's it was... It was Welcome. There, I, I had no expectation. I, sure. I didn't have any idea that that's what that's well, what we were going to. Have. It was a complete surprise. And John, I saw in an interview, said that the reason they can't get the toys is because he didn't want to have the toy ready for the release because it would have revealed 
what was in the series. He said he wanted it to be like when he was a kid watching Star Wars and finding out Vader's Luke's father. You know, nobody knew. He wanted that surprise and wanted the audience to experience it together. Sure. Which I thought was, again, like we were talking about, all these little fan services. This show is definitely speckled with fan services everywhere. Yeah, and not like annoyingly so. No. No, just Not little things, uh, I, like the uh, the carbonite. You know, he yes. freezes them in carbonite. Or even on that episode, he talks about Life Day again. Another reference to the, the Christmas holiday, holiday special. special. Yeah, I watched Star Wars Explained, which I think I've brought up here before. It's a it's a YouTube channel that I really enjoy. They uh, they have full breakdowns and commentaries and stuff for every episode of The Mandalorian. And they said one of the things that they've heard a lot of complaints about is when The Mandalorian goes to Tatooine. And a lot of the shots mirror what you see in A New Hope. Uh, And people were complaining about that. And one of their points of views, and I'm crediting them because this was their observation, not mine. I really enjoyed, after they would pointed it out, it's showing you what the state of Tatooine is in a post-Empire world. Oh, yeah. So we see what Moss Eisley was and how it was a bustling spaceport of scum and villainy. And now it's just kind of a place. Yeah. The cantina... From a new hope where they were like no droids the droid detectors gone droids are manning the bar we oh have, yeah we have uh the stormtrooper helmets on on spears skates, yeah spears outside yes uh, and just that's as a storyteller and, and, and as a fan of fiction for me i like that environmental storytelling where i you don't have to tell me that since jabba is dead and the empire is gone yeah that Tatooine has changed. We don't know if it's changed for better or worse. We don't have that much information, but there is a change. Mm-hmm. And, and the feeling of Moss Eisley specifically, uh, which, you know, Obi-Wan said is a, a wretched hive of scum and scum villainy. Scum villainy, yep. Is now, like, it's not like it isn't that, but it's it definitely feels less so. It feels like more of a tame place. Yeah. Well, they give that feel in the whole series that the Empire is weaker, but the Republic really hasn't come in to fill that gap sure well still a wild west well we're five years after jedi which means that here we go guys this is what you signed up for (laughs) we're we're five years after jedi which means that the battle of jakku was very very recent okay Um, so in the battle of jakku is essentially the the final nail in the coffin of the empire so that was that was what really push them off to the edge. So we still see stormtroopers. We see that the client has a big medallion with the Imperial logo on it. Um, We've got Moff Gideon leading his people. So the Empire, like, there was a a concept in Legends of the Imperial Remnant. Yes. So it's people who are still loyal to the ideals of the Empire, but the Empire as a singular unit no yeah. longer exists. A controlling force. Yeah, they they have no power. No. Um, it, well, they, they have pockets of power, but they have pockets. But do they? Yeah. Like, what are they in charge of? They they're they're mostly, well, they still have some military might. They're I, mostly <clears throat> gangsters at this yeah, point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's it's very interesting. I oh man, we need to talk about the rise of Skywalker at some point because <laughs> when that movie ended, like I, I walked away like, okay, that was cool, but what is the state of like? galactic politics you know yeah, that's yeah. i was so interested but th- in that but that's what i'm looking at with the mandalorian yeah. too is we know that we know that uh leia is uh at this point 
looking at the rise of Skywalker again, I'm not talking about rise of Skywalker, but if we're, if we're looking at the rise of Skywalker, we know that she spent about a year training with Luke. Yes. Um, so at this point she would have been done training with Luke and would have been working <coughs> within the new Republic and potentially starting the idea of forming the resistance. I would say at this point, the book, um, Oh my gosh. There's a book about Leia. Princess Leia Bloodlines, is that the book? Yes, Princess <clears throat> Leia, uh, Star Wars Bloodlines, excuse me, written by Claudia Gray. Is that Legends or is that... That is canon. That is canon, So okay. in, in Bloodlines, we are following Leia as, like, Ben Solo is maybe two, and she and Han have their relationship. So I would say, at this point in The Mandalorian, we're getting the New Republic really stationing itself as a force as like not just a force to be reckoned with but like the political power mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things mon mothma did immediately after the destruction of the second death star around the time of the battle of jakku uh, um, was to cut back significantly the amount of naval forces and ground forces so you're not going the Empire's might was showcased by the Stormtroopers and the fact that there was always something to remind you that the Empire is here and they're in charge. Mm -hmm. And we definitely don't see that near as much. The only time we see Stormtroopers is when the is when like Moff Gideon or the client are taking over a town. So you were saying they've got some power and it's incredibly limited. Yeah. Uh, and I think just speaking politically in the, the star Wars universe, it, it very much is interesting that the only places I mean, we've only seen things from the Mandalorian's point of view. So we haven't seen too much and, and I will definitely allow for that. But based mm -hmm. on what we've seen through the limited scope, we've only seen the empire showing power in very small remote places where the new Republic won't necessarily have as much pull. Okay, yeah, that's true. Because he's always because he's being tracked, <clears throat> he's got to stay into the remote, more remote areas where the Republic doesn't care. Mm -hmm, exactly. But the Empire might want to have the local governors being the the gangsters there. So yeah, to speak. exactly. Yeah, I'm sorry, it took me a long time to point. So. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. Going back to Baby Yoda, I guess. Yep. What do you think about those that that may say that? Why do we have to have a cuteness factor in here again? We you know we had the Ewoks. Do we? Have why do we? Why do we? Why do you have to have fun, Lee? Why? Why do we? Why do we do anything for fun? It's adorable. Here's yes. here's what happens immediately with episode two is called the child, okay. and and the whole idea behind episode two was the Mandalorian was bringing the target back to the client in order to get his payment and go. All we know about the Mandalorian is that he's a bounty hunter. He's doing a job. But we can't see his face, and he kills people. That's not a sympathetic person. While he's on the <laughs> ship with the, the babies fiddling around with stuff, and as he's looking at the baby, he's thinking of himself when he was a kid. And oh, yeah, those flashbacks. He was rescued. Yep. So, yeah, there is a cuteness factor to the child or baby Yoda, or whatever you want to call him. But through that cuteness factor, the fact that we identify with him and want to protect him. I say him, <laughs> it might be her when we look at the child and we, we want to protect the child, we automatically are going to judge how people handle 
this kid. Uh, and so when we watch the Mandalorian handle the baby <coughs> gently, we automatically understand that we can go ahead and care for this guy. Mm-hmm. And we feel bad when he turns him over. We understand it. We don't feel comfortable with it. And neither does he. And he has to go back and, and save it. And if you look at how his relationship with the baby works, every single time somebody sees the baby, however they react to that baby informs us of their character. Mm. Uh, and that's that's true almost 100% of the time. So in the very last episode of the season, we it starts off with those two scout troopers, and he's in a bag. <laughs> And the scout troopers are there hitting the bag, trying to get the baby to shut up. And we automatically know, hate these people, they need to die. He lands on Tatooine, and there's that that hard-edged lady who doesn't want to help him. She's like, I don't care about any of this stuff. Uh, she sees the baby, and she's like, okay. Even uh, Grief Karga, to a certain extent, he is upset with the Mandalorian until he sees the baby, and he's like, Okay, sure. And so we understand that grief is somebody we can get behind. Moff Gideon, no. <laughs> yes. Cara, Cara Dune absolutely is pro pro Mandalorian on the side of the baby. It's 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 very much a litmus test. It's a very, okay. very quick way. Uh so yeah, it's cute, it's it's toyetic, it's something that that but also it's because of the baby that you can get your girlfriend to watch Star Wars with you. Ah, so. <laughs> okay, okay, good point, good point. Speaking of the stormtroopers hitting the baby in that scene, too, they were trying to shoot the target, and they couldn't hit it. Sure. That's another fan service. It is a little bit of fan service. Here's what's always bugged me with that. The the fact that stormtroopers can't shoot is a joke that goes back to the original Star Wars movie. And we're doing this again. You guys strap in. We're doing this again. I'm going down a <laughs> Hang on going the down ride. rabbit hole. So in uh, in A New Hope, when they escape on the Millennium Falcon, they get away. Leia mentions that they let her go. They let them go fairly easily. Han is like, you think that was easy? And I, I honestly believe that we look at how the stormtroopers shoot at Leia and Luke and Han when they're escaping the Death Star. They wanted them to escape. That's how they found where the rebel base is. That's true. At the beginning of A New Hope, there is uh, when Owen and Beru were killed, they show up to the site, Obi-Wan and, uh, and Luke show up, and they said maybe the Sand People did this. And Obi-Wan says no, and only Imperial Stormtroopers are so precise. Is it precise? Were they sporadic? I don't know. But that is kind of the thing. If, if we go back to even earlier in The Mandalorian, you watch how the stormtroopers shoot, and they're not missing. <laughs> I, I think it's a funny joke. I think yeah. it's a. I think it's a fun throwaway. I, I just posted a meme earlier today about stormtroopers missing, but it is something I will staunchly defend. I, I feel like it is an unwarranted thing. I do like the idea that these stormtroopers can't hit anything. I don't like these guys. I really wanted when he when that one guy was shaking the gun by yeah. his helmet. I wanted it to sh- go off and shoot him in the face. That would have um, been awesome. That actually, been really, really funny. So I just had to go on my high horse for. Well, just a I second. like that they just put that little no, jab sure. in there. It was a again. John just hits all the little fan things. Oh, for sure. Here and there, and that was that episode was directed by Taika Waititi, who understands pacing, and he can take he can he can take these two characters that we're just like 
waiting to die. Yeah. Yeah. And uh and and make it so what they're doing is at least engaging and entertaining. It it yeah. kind of had a feel to the old comic Tag and Bink, which was a, a comedic story about these two these two stormtrooper characters who were always in the peripheries of major events that were happening in the Star Wars universe. And I don't believe these two characters were Tag and Bink at all. It did very much ring true for what you would read in in a Legends comic that was kind of comedic that takes place during this super heavy event. Yeah. Okay. Well, how, how excited were you were to see the Darksaber? Would you have ever Man, thought you would see that in, in a live action series? So you guys, you guys know me, and <laughs> I love the Clone Wars, and I love Rebels, and Sabine is one of my all-time favorite Star Wars characters, and I love Pre Vizsla, who was voiced by Jon Favreau. His arc in Clone Wars is one of the greatest things. If you guys only watch one arc in Clone Wars, look up the episodes about Pre Vizsla. It's so cool because I thought the I was so happy in the in the episode of The Mandalorian where he ran into the really big dude with the with the gun and they hold fibro blades up to each other's necks or whatever. That was that guy was voiced by John Favreau. His that character's name was Paz Vizla, which is a little bit different than Pre Vizsla's name. But they have very similar names. They were both voiced by John Favreau. I was like, I'm very happy with this. So we cut to the final episode, and we're pretty sure Moff Gideon's dead. I was like, I bet you at least half of his face is burned off. It's like Breaking Bad. Uh, sorry, guys. In Breaking Bad, he loses half his face. When I saw that blade come through, I was like, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> as soon as the episode was over, I made my girlfriend sit through like five YouTube videos on the history of the Darksaber and what it means to Star Wars. And she was just rolling her eyes. I was like, no, but it's the Darksaber. So the Darksaber, for those of you who don't know and haven't bothered to look it up, I'm going to tell you. For those of you who do know, tell me how wrong I am. We'll give you the crash course here. There was a Mandalorian Jedi with the last name of Vizsla before the Clone Wars. He was the first Mandalorian. He forged a saber where the blade was black and it emitted like a white light. And it was a dark saber. When he died, the saber was kept in the Jedi Archives, Coruscant. Pre Vizsla broke into the temple and stole the dark saber uh, at a time where Mandalore as a, as a planet and as a species were more passive and peace loving oh my gosh i just realized i can tie this all back mm -hmm. i'm very excited so pre vizsla led a group of mandalorians called death watch and they wore blue armor this is around the time of the clone wars if we watch the final episode of mandalorian where we're learning more and more about what happened to the mandalorian we saw that his parents were more or less killed by some super battle droids during the clone wars he was saved by a squad of Mandalorians wearing blue armor. My boy was saved by Death Watch, who was led ah. by Pre Vizsla, who actually at that point in time would have had the Dark, dark saber. saber. Through Rebels and whatever, Sabine got the Dark Saber, and the Dark Saber was passed on to a lady named Bo Katan, who was voiced by Katie Sackhoff. Uh, and the character actually is designed to look like her. So there's a massive question as far as the Darksaber goes between like what happened to Bo-Katan that would have caused the Darksaber to enter 
in Imperial Security Bureau officer and ISB officer to get that. Uh, and that's all going to come down to the purge of Mandalore. And it was with the purge, whatever happened during the purge is what caused a massive rift in the Mandalorians. That's what caused their culture to now no longer remove their helmets. They always leave their helmets on. Presumably, Mandalorians as a race has been wiped out because they say in the show that being a Mandalorian is a creed, not a race. So the purge of Mandalore, my assumption is Bo-Katan was killed and the Darksaber was confiscated by the Empire. So there are no species Mandalore around anymore. Um, That's what they said in the show. We, We don't know what happened specifically with the purge. We don't know... We don't know what it means to be a Mandalorian as a race versus as a culture. And I, I, I need that in my life. <laughs> I think they'll explore that. They just really seem to be having a lot of fun with this. Who is your favorite character in the series? My gosh. And why? That is a hard, hard question. You know, it was a toss-up between, between a lot of people. And I think the final episode solidified it for me. Um, I'm going to go with Cynthian Dune. Cara Dune, and the reason is I, I always dug her character. <coughs> I love the actress who plays her, apropos of nothing. But uh, when Moff Gideon is is identifying everybody, calling them by their names, we find out that Cara Dune is a survivor of Alderaan. Mm-hmm. And yes, as soon as I saw that, I was like, yes, of course, yes, absolutely. It it just like the reason you you look at her in the promo images, and you're like, who gets a rebel tattoo on their face? Like, even if it's just a little one, who gets a rebel yeah, tattoo? On you're a target. Face? Yeah, absolutely. Like, what could possibly have driven you to, oh, the Empire destroyed your planet? Yeah, a- absolutely. I'm, and, and the way, if you look at what Leia did in response to the Empire destroying Alderaan, where she just, you know, she was like, okay, now I'm going to go lead the charge. You have to imagine, this is me bringing it to the table. This is not canon. This is Tim's interpretation. You have to imagine being a, alone in the universe when your planet has been destroyed you look at your royalty or i'm not sure if it's a political i don't know the political structure of alderaan what am i a a nerd but if you if you see the surviving royalty of your planet pull up her bootstraps and just go on to be a badass you you can't help but follow suit and and cara dune literally lost everything and forged her own identity and I just absolutely am in love with that. I, I love I love what she's done. Her attitude is fantastic. She's always, even when she's in peril, she's smiling and she's pushing her way through it. Uh, and it's it's admirable and it's super cool. Going into season two next year, what are a couple things, co- characters, concepts that are on your wish list that you hope that they explore? You kind of alluded to it, I guess, with the, the dark saber. I, with, I wanted. I would like to know what happened during the purge. I, I want to know what happened during the purge of Mandalore. I would love to see Bo-Katan because uh, they they talk about the purge. I guess explain when in the timeline was the purge. So we're five years the, after return. Five years after return. When um, was the purge? The purge presumably would have happened around the time of, I would say, Rogue One or okay. or the original movie. In Rebels, season four of Rebels, we see the beginnings of the 
revolution on Mandalore, uh, and that's led by Sabine and Bo-Katan. And I really, in season two of The Mandalorian, if I don't find out about The Purge, that's fine, but I would like some more information on Mandalorian culture. Even if I don't have information on Bo-Katan as a character or even Sabine, I don't need to see these characters. I would love to. I would okay. kill to see these characters. But I want to know more about, you know, let's presumably at this point, because the the armorer said that effectively the Mandalorian is the child's father. And that is until they return the child to its people or the child decides to become a Mandalorian. And I'm very curious if there's a time jump maybe between seasons one and two mm. or what we'll see as far as the relationship. I I want to give the darn baby a name. I would like to not have to the child or I, I there's a very Western sensibility to the Mandalorian, the client, the child. And I, I like that a lot. But I also, I'm kind of a fan of naming things. Yes. And uh, I would love to be able to say Steve instead of Baby Yoda or the child. And, and then we can all stop arguing over which is the correct nomenclature. Uh, it's, 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 it's Steve. Do you think they'll go to Yoda's homeworld? No. No. I don't. I, I don't. If we, if we get information on what species Yoda is or where he's from... You run the risk of you run the risk of ruining the mystique of what makes Yoda interesting. It was something that a lot of fans pushed back on in the comic book world a few years ago when they gave away Wolverine's origin because everybody was like, if you tell me where he's from, he's not going to be interesting. Well, they told us where he was from, then they found out a way to make him interesting again. And that's cool with a character that currently exists. But as Yoda has passed, I almost I prefer it personally as not knowing. I don't need to know, and maybe that could be a a welcome linchpin to the story of the child. As if he's like, you know, we can't find any information, but I don't need any information because this is my tribe, this is my people, this is this is what makes me me. If they do tell us Yoda's history and who his people are, where they came from, and maybe they're all Force-sensitive. I don't know. If I got that, I'll be disappointed, but I won't be angry. It's not what I want, but Star Wars does not have to be what I want. Sure. Uh, I don't I don't make the rules. I, I, I know what I like about Star Wars, but until what I like is challenged, I won't know if I like something different. I do have theories... <laughs> with the cloning and how that relates to Palpatine and the rise of Skywalker. Oh, yes. Um, I, I'm not, I'm still formulating because I was under the impression that in rise of Skywalker, which as of recording, I've only seen once. So Me too. I could be wrong. I thought that Palpatine himself was a clone or that he had cloned an aspect of himself. And I guess I was wrong in that, but I was wondering too, if, if the baby is cloned or if they take a piece of his DNA and are able to map out midi-chlorians, mm. it would make it plausible to clone a force user. But 
that just opens up all kinds of other things because I've always wondered if clone troopers, if it was ever plausible for a clone trooper to have a different midi-chlorian count than another or to be able to tap into the force or to be force sensitive. So when I see in the rise of Skywalker that Finn is force sensitive, that's like, Oh, what if, what if captain Rex was force sensitive? Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I, I have, there's, if I wrote for star Wars, I would absolutely write after the, after order 66, as the clone troopers were getting phased out, I would absolutely write about a former clone trooper, who was maybe force sensitive and what that means to somebody who, who had succumbed to order 66. And what would that mean if suddenly you realize you're the thing that you're supposed to kill? Uh, ah. I don't know. I just, I think that's interesting. That would be interesting. Hey, so Hey, Hayden, if you could call Kathleen <laughs> Kennedy and tell her, I have an idea, I would appreciate it. Thank you. That actually is a, a good idea because they're, they're made millions of clones. What if one of them was force sensitive? Like they would have to right? at least one just by accident right well i mean you wouldn't do it on purpose but that also theoretically could have inspired the caminoans to be like oh well if if one of them has the force we could have done this and it would also explain like palpatine's existence in the rise of skywalker would explain why the clone troopers were phased out in in favor of you know stealing children and brainwashing kids because all of their resources were going to clone force users. Um, And that might be how we got Snoke. And we're learning more about Snoke in the Rise of Kylo Ren comic, um, which is really, really good. Okay. So, yeah, you guys, I could talk about Star Wars. On the clone side, wasn't the the guy that was in episode two, he had a patch on his shoulder that was a Mm -hmm. Camino patch? Yeah, um, that was... Pershing, Dr. Pershing. Okay. Uh, he definitely has a, a patch that was similar to the cloning facility on Camino. So there's obviously some cloning that was they were trying to do. Yeah. And really with, flesh it out, I guess. Along with John Favreau, the co-showrunner of The Mandalorian is Dave Filoni. Dave Filoni is the mastermind really behind the success of Clone Wars and Rebels uh, and even Star Wars Resistance. He's very... And he very much loves clones, and he would not put in a reference to a clone on accident. Okay. Uh, and, and I don't believe that that's just like, oh, hey, let's see if people notice this. Like, no, it's going to be there for a reason. Sure. Well, as these, as I've said in other episodes about Star Wars, a lot of these writers now and producers, directors, and whatnot are all, they grew up on this stuff. And so they're writing and directing and producing a lot of the stuff that the fans want. So I think you're going to see more air quote here, fan service, in my opinion, on a lot of these different stories and characters. And they're going to give us those things that, you know, because they enjoyed them when they were young. And so we're kind of along for the ride is, is kind of my thought pattern on that. Absolutely. And I, I wouldn't even say anymore because of, because of the fa- the fans are the people making the show, I would almost say it's not even fan service anymore. It's like transcended fan service yeah. to almost be just like story service. Okay. Because it was the stuff that they fell in love with, and they're like, "Well, let's embrace this." There's a there's a troop carrier in an episode of The Mandalorian that was based on a troop carrier that was supposed to be in one of the movies, but was scrapped. But there was a toy that came out. 
Oh. Uh, so in The Mandalorian, it's when, um, I want to say it's in episode seven, right before uh, right before they open fire on, uh, when Moff Gideon is opening fire on The Mandalorian oh. and Kara, there's like a, a little troop transport that shows up and a bunch of stormtroopers come out. Oh, okay, yes, it, yes, yes. It's based on an old toy from like the 70s and 80s. Really? Yeah. So Somebody like, found a... Yeah, picture they, of it, and they just went. They just went to town, and and it's 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 really cool to just be a fan and watch fans take over. I had somebody tell me once that they think only fans should make things, and I think that's incorrect. Hmm. Um, I I don't agree with that at all. But there is something to be said for having fans tell a story in a way that somebody who's an outsider wouldn't be able to. But I also think the inverse of that is also true. Sure. I think I think in order to grow, you need to have an outside an outsider's view of what could be good or what could be fun. Uh, but also on the Mandalorian, just just give me all the stuff I want. That would be great. Thank you. <laughs> well, you can tell John loves the universe he's playing in. Oh yeah, he's that makes a huge so, difference. So well versed, and and you know, like Dave Filoni uh, works very closely with like Pablo Hidalgo and Matt Martin and other people in the Lucasfilm Story Group. And to have, like, just easy access to those guys. It really feels like in the movies, the Lucasfilm story group is more of a, an advisor capacity. Whereas, like, in The Mandalorian, it feels like they are much more of an active part. So instead of, like, in Rise of Skywalker, the very beginning, we're never told this, but the, the planet that Kylo Ren is on is Mustafar. And he was actually in the ruins of Vader's castle. Oh. And you don't know that until after the fact when the visual dictionary comes out or Pablo Hidalgo tweets it. And you're like, oh, that's really interesting. And it's it's cool if you've played the Vader Immortal VR game, you know why Mustafar is no longer just encased in lava and why there are trees and why there are people living on it. Oh. And that has no bearing to... You know, John Doe, as he's going to the theater to watch Star Wars, he doesn't care about the planet or who these people are. But as a fan, I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is Mustafar. This is where Vader's castle is. This is in episode three where Vader and Obi-Wan have their have battle. their <clears throat> battle and he gets his arms cut off and he's crawling in the lava pit. It's, it's just nuts. It's so cool. Uh, and just to have that exist is super fun just to put that again those little things that they have in a lot of this so back to the wish list thing sure we talked about maybe having the episodes a little longer or maybe having more episodes the next go around is that something you kind of like you'd want to see i would really like that i would love a higher episode count or a consistent length of an episode i understand that when we're watching the mandalorian at no point was i like why does this show cost so much it's a lot like Game of Thrones. When you watch an episode of Game of Thrones, you're not shocked when you find out how much it costs because it's all on the screen. But I do believe, given the perceived success of season one out of the gate, uh, and I mean we're we're not even, we're talking about like season one just finished. Disney yeah. Plus hasn't even existed for more than a couple of months, so we're we're going to see what the value of the show is over the next few months as people who haven't seen it yet come in to watch it or binge it or people who go in to rewatch it or if it's pirated what Disney needs to be able to see the value in the property 
which they already do. I mean, they've already got their money back oh, yeah. from when they bought it from George Lucas. But I believe that Disney will see that there is inherent value. And we probably won't see like a 20-episode season. But I don't think it's outside of the realm of plausibility to get 10 to 12 episodes. 12. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe instead of seeing you know, the shortest episode being between like 28 and 33 minutes, maybe we'll get you know, consistently 40-minute episodes, if nothing else. That would be super great. Uh, and I'm not trying to shoot for the moon here. I'm like, just give me, like, three three more episodes a season. Give me just about maybe five to ten more minutes per episode okay. on average. And, that's, you know, let's start there. Okay. If you had Kathleen, last question, if you had Kathleen Kennedy here, what would you tell her in season two and three, what you need to keep doing and what don't do this or you know, what do you need to keep your, here's what I'd like to see you keep doing. I don't know kind of what I, you're doing. Good. Sure. Maybe what you don't want to do to, to the franchise. Um, I don't know that I'd be able to answer that question. I don't, I, I don't, I don't know that I'm, I'm equipped to say that. Yeah. All I, all I would be able to say is like, here's what I love. Find ways to continue to surprise me. Don't allow the merchandise to overtake the show. Okay. Because I want, I want stuff. I want to be able to have stuff, but not at the expense of being surprised. Uh, I want to constantly be surprised. I want to, as far as the Mandalorian himself, don't give me any reason to hate him. I want to, I, I don't need to be happy with his actions all the time. I, I want to maybe question why I like him, but I want to consistently be on his side. And I think that's, that's the most important thing. What's what they've done with the Mandalorian as a character, with us not being able to see his face, what they've done is just fantastic. What yeah. the stunt crew has done and what the directors have done and what the actors have all done, uh, it makes me believe that this helmet is is a sympathetic character, and that is that is amazing. So continue to surprise me. Continue to make me love this character, and and please put him through hell. <laughs> make make the worst things in the world happen to this guy so that when he overcomes it, I, I can just be super happy for him. I do like the, the fact that the Beskar, you know, the metal they have, you know, he can take a beating and it oh, he doesn't gets, matter. He gets shot more than Mal and Firefly. He, got, he gets shot so much. And a lot of it is he understands he's going to get shot. Yeah. He puts so much faith in his armor because he believes in his cause and who he is. It is very, very intense. You watch like the action scenes, they're really, really fun, but you watch the Mandalorian specifically, he will take a shot yeah. in the chest. It's so well, good. Well, he knows he can. Yeah, I absolutely. can take a hit. So I didn't know much about Beskar until, until no, this series. Nobody did. <laughs> and then now everybody's like, what is this stuff? No, it's so cool. It is. Well, thanks, Tim. I appreciate it. I love diving into these Mandalorian or Star Wars universe. So if the listener who this is your first time you've heard Tim, you can go back and get some other Star Wars information, some previous episodes. I'll put those in the show notes. But, Tim, as always, please let the listener know how they can get in touch with you. Mr. Sure. Mention tweeting. You can tell him he's wrong or he's right. No, or we're both do. wrong. Or- so far, nobody, nobody has had the, uh, has had the cojones to tell me how <laughs> wrong I am. Uh, so you must be right. I must be right. I'm clearly right about everything. Uh, and my opinion is law and I am always correct. So, uh, <laughs> that's that, sarcasm by the way. <laughs> no, no, I am the best. Uh, nobody's told me I'm not. So, uh, which is clearly, 
clearly the impetus behind it. Um, but hey, I run Rainbow Comics here in Lincoln. Uh, there are two different Rainbow Comics. Uh, one is in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And we're owned by the same by the same person. So if you're in South Dakota, stop in at Rainbow. Tell them I sent you. Uh, it'll be a good time. Uh, but if you're looking for me specifically, I am on Twitter. I'm at M-O-T-H-E-E, Mothi, like Timothy Mothi, that's me. Uh, but yeah, Rainbow Comics, we're at 1501 Pine Lake Road, Suite 17 here in Lincoln, Oh, as a heads up, on January 1st, there's going to be a brand new Star Wars number one. It's taking place after The Empire Strikes Back. There was a 75-issue run that bridged the gap between A New Hope and Empire. And now there's going to be, I'm assuming, a significantly shorter run bridging Empire and Jedi. But yeah, we'll definitely have those in stock on the 1st, which I believe probably a couple days ago from when you're listening to this, if it's uh, posted, depending on when it's posted. Um, you can always give us a call at 402-975-8332, or uh, if you're on Facebook, just look us up on there. We are Rainbow Comics Lincoln, uh, and you can always shoot us a message. I'll answer it, or Taylor, the girl who works here, she'll be more than happy to answer your questions, and uh, we got you all covered. Cool. Well, thanks, Tim. I appreciate it. Thanks, Lee. It's always fun to dive into the Star Wars universe with you. We'll have to dive into another topic, or or I know we've been teasing about doing Hellboy. Oh, so yes. We may have to do that one next to get off the Star there's, Wars bandwagon. If there's something people want me to talk about, let me know, and if I know anything about it, I'll do my best. I know a lot of people really loved your Transformers episode. Oh, man. So we may have to visit Do that we have again. another hour real quick? Cause, <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Tim. Tim is such a great guy. He exudes his enthusiasm about the things he's interested in. He loves Star Wars, as you can tell, and Transformers and other things. So I always enjoy sitting down with him and talking about different topics. Go to covertnerd.net to reach out to me if you would like to. And until next time, nerd it up.